0: 1 Samuel chapter five, Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter five. Talking about the uh, quintessence of God. What is that, quintessence? Cool word, you gotta use it more often. We gotta resurrect this word. The true nature of, the fullness of God. What is God's quintessence? What are the things of his nature that you can't leave out if trying to express and convey to others who he truly is? In other words, What things of God are always of God and always have been of God and always will be of God? And this is one in particular thing we're going to devote an entire message to. We talked about eight or ten things last week. This is just one thing. God is always and will always and will never waver from always being against idolatry. Idolatry, from a pastoral perspective, is something you want to pepper in to a church's spiritual diet a couple times a year. It's, uh, it's uh, something that can creep up on us and kind of invade our lives if we're not careful. Idolatry today, a little different than idolatry of yesterday in the Old Testament. Back then, you think more of uh, items fashioned by the hands of men that uh, were worshiped or uh, adored or counted on. But they could impart no life because they had no life. They could give you nothing because they had nothing. They were inanimate. They felt nothing. They longed for nothing. They were just images made and fashioned by, by the hands of men. Now today, idolatry can creep into our life, into our culture within us. We can place things... Of, a, of an importance above God in our own life and our own minds, and when we do that, we have created for ourselves an idol. And it's good to know that, be aware of that, so we can deal properly with that. But the one true God will always—and I mean always—be counted on to deal with the idolatry, because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me give you a further definition. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used. Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used and using anything that ought to be worshiped. Well, you can use God. God should be worshiped, but we can use him. You can Uh, seek to manipulate him. You can interact with him in such a way where you know he he needs to be dependent on for certain things, but you in no way, shape, or form have any intention of complying with the rest of who he is. You're only appealing to one part of him. You are using God when he should be worshipped or we're worshipping things in our life that should be used by us, not own us. And this is important. It's particularly important in this cultural moment that we live in now. Something captures our heart and our affections other than our Lord. That's idolatry. I'll give you an example. Planning a wedding. What a phenomenon this is. Planning a wedding I have done many weddings, and I don't think this is the case very often, but I can see how a wedding would become more important to someone than the person they're actually marrying. (laughs) Some people actually, I'll give you another internal idol. Some people marry, initially anyway, they marry the concept of marriage. They marry the institution of marriage. They marriage the ideo- ideology of marriage. They, they marry the fantasy of what marriage will be like, only to find out that so-and-so came with <laughs> it, it. He's part of the package, like on a daily basis. And boy, when you come to that awareness. We can, we can, uh, our affections can be given to something good even, but to such an extreme it, it takes a th- uh, priority over other things that are good, or it causes us to not even deal with the best of the good, which is Christ himself. We have to be aware of this. And there are different idols in our culture actively at work right now that seek to ruin our lives, if we allow them. All right, so First Samuel chapter five, here's, here's what happened. Uh, if you go left one page, basically the Israelites got absolutely waylaid in a war, thousands of them died. And the ark of God was taken from the Israelites and the Philistines now have it. Philistines, by the way, is an early derivative of the word Palestinian, okay? Same group of people. So imagine today the Palestinians have the ark of God and the Israelites have been in a bad war. And they take the ark of the covenant of God and they put it next to their idol, Dagon. They worshiped an idol called Dagon. And in Dagon's temple, they placed the Ark of the Covenant. And that's what we're gonna read about here right now. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, There was Dagon, fallen on his face to the earth before the Ark of the Lord. Whoa, good morning. Had the, uh, because the Ark was no longer in the hands of the Israelites and is now in a pagan temple, had the Ark of the Covenant lost its glory, the glory of the Lord in the Ark, had it lost any of its power, no, its power, its uh, presence of the Spirit of God was not conditional upon in whose hands or who stewarded or who took care of the ark. The power of God is the power of God. It's not dependent upon who has it. So if you take the power of God away from the Israelites and then the next day you put it in the temple to Dagon, it still has the glory there. And listen. God will be worshipped. And the only worshipper in that temple was an idol. So what did they wake up to? Dagon on his face before the ark. Even if the Christians on earth no longer worship God, he still, he still will be worshipped. Even the rocks will cry out, And if he wants to double the number of worshipers, he'll split the rocks in half like he did at the crucifixion. Now we have twice as many worshipers as we did originally. God will be worshiped. And Dagon learned that that day if he even had the capacity to learn. Now what is Dagon? Dagon is the father of Baal. Bad news. He's half fish. How'd how'd you like to go? We going to church today, mommy? Yeah, we're gonna go worship. A figure that is half fish, half man. That's what that is. Some kind of mermaid looking, who knows what, Dagon. Uh, And he's on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, they don't really know what to do. Interesting, that's what we have so far. And you can pick an idol back up. If an idol falls, you pick an idol back up, prop it back up, let it do what it's gonna do, look the way it's gonna look. People do this all the time. We get involved in things, we lend our affection to something like money or power or prestige or status or prowess or skill, giftedness. Ministry can be an idol. And, and if we learn a lesson or two that this isn't working out for me, and we kind of let it go, but it's easy for us to go back and pick it back up. We'll we'll prop it back up. We'll see what happens. With the best of intentions, I'm not saying we're doing anything evil, but with the best of intentions, you can make an idol out of ministry. Many do, and they fall. And they go to jail. What do they do when they get out? They prop it right back up. We can do that. It's not a problem. That's what these guys did. They picked it back up. So they took Dagon and set it in his place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. We not only have the ability to pick it back up and prop, but we have the willingness and the desire and the ambition at times to do it. Now listen to this. The head of Dagon, I guess we're looking at a cold fish head at this point, and both the palms of its hands, so it has fins and hands, were broken off on the threshold. This is the second time. And Dagon's torso was was the only thing left, was left of it. You have the torso of a large, inanimate, handless, headless fish man. The Lord will continue to keep idols out of our minds and behavior, and he'll keep taking idols away from us to whatever extent it takes for us to finally learn, I have to denounce, renounce my affection and worship of that particular area of my life over and above Jesus Christ. Your idol will get smaller and smaller and smaller, more difficult to prop up in more pieces than it finally started. If you continue to prop back up and hold on to this, for dear life, to this area of your life that gives you a sense of importance, And purpose and meaning. This is the quintessence of God. This is what he does. And some of you are looking at me like, what in the world is this guy talking about? Well, when you feel like getting up in about five minutes, don't, because we're going to get real specific. Not only will he take these idols and break them to pieces, he will paralyze them, he will render them useless. If they have become our identity, he will dismantle them one solitary piece at a time. If your identity is rooted more and has a greater allegiance to your ability to do something, accumulate something, or be known for something, or have notoriety for something, one piece at a time, he will dismantle that identity, painfully as it may be, until we let go and realize my allegiance first is to Christ. And he does not play. It's a battle we will not win. They wanted to believe it was an accident that this thing fell over, the first time, the second time. There are no accidents when it comes to idolatry. God will dismantle what God will dismantle. And he will use, this is important, any, Legal means of doing so. He's not going to steal an idol. He's not going to carry it off at the, in the night and take it. Our God doesn't sin. He's going to exact judgment upon it and dismantle it or disempower it because he owns everything on this earth and the fullness thereof. Do you have an idol this morning? The Philistine priests rejected God, despite the evidence of who He was. Well, this is nothing new. We have evidence of so much that lends credibility to the Scripture from scientific, from anthropology, from uh, archaeology, from anthropology, from a- some aspects of, of biophysics and, and uh, astrophysics and, and and any kind of biology you want to. We can't. We have evidence of of all kinds of things that verify truth in the Scripture. A lot, and ever-growing, I might add, body of work. But these Philistines were like most of the people in in the world today. They didn't really want evidence. They weren't looking for evidence. But despite the evidence, not because of the evidence, they continued to get rid of the ark and deny its power. They wanted to believe it was an accident. Setting Dagon up and gluing him together is easier than changing your life and your thinking. If you're in in the sound of my voice today, whether it be today or six months or six years from now, listen, if you perceive it to be easier to deny God and dismantle him in in your reasoning, though you really don't know what you're talking about, that is more work, my friend, than actually accepting him and allowing him to radically change your life. Every day that goes by is a missed opportunity for him to tinker with your heart and your mind and to change your life for the better. But if you want to, you can, like these pagan priests, you can, despite the evidence, deny it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor anyone who came into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in, in Ashdod to this day. They just stayed out of there. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod. And he ravaged them and struck them with tumors. Don't want to gross you out this morning. (laughs) But it's true. City after city that started handing off the Ark of the Covenant came up, we'll call them tumors. I won't even mention that they were hemorrhoids, but they were tumors. (laughs) I wouldn't say that. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for its hand is harsh towards us and Dagon, our God. Therefore, we sent and gathered them to themselves to the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? Well, it becomes becomes a hot potato. We gotta get rid of this thing. Pass it on to the next town, go to the next town, get rid of it, get it as far away from here as we possibly can. It's more powerful than anything we have. We don't know what to do with it. It's like the people who saw the demoniac set free in the New Testament. They go, just get out of here, man. We are petrified. We don't really get this. That thing has power. That man has power to set that uh, demoniac free. Just please go. We're overwhelmed. We don't know what to do. That's what they're doing. That's the precedent right here. Let the ark of the covenant of God go and be carried to Gath. So they carried the ark of the God of Israel anyway. So it was, as they carried away, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them as well. Then they sent it to Ekron. And the ark of God came to Ekron. The Ekronites cried out, saying, they have brought the ark of God of Israel to us. Kill us and our people. Kill us, they say. So they sent and gathered together all the Lord of Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place. We don't know how to deal with this power. Uh, even today, even today, there are many people in various places of Christendom that, that, that are really, they live their life acknowledging the one true God, acknowledging the scripture, but they deny the power is active even today. They, they don't know what to say about that So they'll come up with reasoning that says that God no longer uses power like that. Even though he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. There's no longer uh, healing, there's no longer this, there's no longer that. Uh, Doesn't make much sense. It's much more of a Philistine theology than it is a Christian theology. And if you think about it, the irony is, God was moving more among these lost people from city to city to city, almost as much as he was in the book of Acts. God was coming to a town near you almost every day. They could not keep him in one place. Well, today's idols are more in the self than on the shelf. Let's talk about them that for which I would give anything and accept nothing in exchange is the most important thing in life. Whatever that is, is my God. If you read Isaiah 44, and I I commend you to do so today, even before you go to bed tonight, Isaiah 44, 6 to 20, it deals with this subject of idols quite well. God's feeling on the subject is this. Exodus 20, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Very simple. We're gonna put that out as a command before the other commands follow because it's a root command, because it's a primary foundational truth that we have to get a hold of to understand the rest of the commands in their fullness. You shall have no other gods before me. I was sickened one day. I was just sickened as I sat in my hotel room in uh, Bangalore, India, watching television, uh, dealing with jet lag and prayer and ambient at the same time. And this thing comes on the television and these, I mean poor people, these people were poor as poor can be. And they were standing in line to go in before an idol, some, some gross looking face of somebody, I don't even know what it was, It was on a table and they were bringing probably $50 worth of fresh fruit and berries and and food before this idol and laying it in front of this idol and then walking off, their, their children in tow, holding hands, the kids looking back at the food, realizing they wouldn't even eat anything maybe for two or three days. That is a picture of the poignancy and the destruction of idolatry the desperation of human soul to entrust an inanimate object to somehow have power over their own reasoning and the one true God. The greatest idol in our culture, and we're warned about it time and time again, is of course, money. It is the granddaddy of idols. There is absolutely nothing wrong with money in and of itself. The accumulation of money is not a sin. Being rich and successful and using biblical principles to to become prosperous and abundant is not a sin. Hoarding it, I guess, would be. But it comes down to this verse right here. 1 Timothy 6 and 10, for the love of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. I say it's the granddaddy of idolatry because it spawns off other forms of idolatry. Money has an inherent power to it that can shape, if allowed to, shape the human mind and the human heart in, in in a negative response to the one who provided it. To have money and lots of it, one must have wisdom and an understanding that to whom much is given, much is required. But the love of money, the, the longing for, the need for, to complete oneself at times, or to be of value, is based on the value that you've accumulated, is idolatry. And it's, it's a root of all kinds of evil. It's beneath the surface as a root and it's hard to see. But above the surface, you'll get all kinds of things like pride and arrogance and judgment against others. You'll get, you'll get all kinds of things spawned from this wicked love of money. It's the grand poobah of them all for which some have strayed from the faith even and in their greediness and pierced themselves through many sorrows. If someone had a great importance placed on their net worth, the accumulation of money, to be known for having money, to be known for being rich, to to take too much from that notoriety and fame and complete themselves and define themselves by having it and having a lot of it and are preoccupied with the amount that's been accumulated and to define themselves by its, its amount, its net worth, that person right there has a love of money and God will take that idol and it will fall over and it will bow before him because God's less interested in the money and more interested in the corrupted heart who needs it. He wants the corrupted heart to worship him. Uh, I've seen this many times. I've seen it in my own life. I, As you, I told you before, as a young 20-something kid, I could, I was a finance manager and a car salesman. You know, forgive me if I ever sold you a car. <laughs> well, I left that whole life and uh, I got saved. And I had, I had left it I, and there was a period of time where I didn't know what I was gonna do to provide for my family after I got married and I, I tried to revisit the industry just to make some money for a couple of months. And I I could sell 15, 20 cars a month. I was pretty good at it. When I went back and I could get a job in five minutes, they would have me back anytime. I had friends in the industry and they say, Yeah, come back you, anytime you want. That's an industry where you get a job in five minutes and you can start selling cars. I went back, I couldn't give a car away. I couldn't sell a car, I couldn't give one away on a game show. I couldn't discount it enough. I couldn't, no way I was gonna sell a car. God had kept me from selling cars. I wasn't gonna sell a car. It wasn't the customer, it wasn't the sales manager, it wasn't the price, it was God. God was standing there going, son, son, son. You had a prowess. You had an ability. You you had an acuum, you had a, a discernment of how to speak with people and relate to them and you were pretty good at it, but you don't have that anymore. That fell down before the General Motors idol and it's worshiping me now. I, I could not do it. My wife looked at me like, I thought you were like this big car salesman you come home with these big checks. Broke, man, we were broke. Nothing, nothing happened. And finally, they asked me, what is going on with you? Like five years ago, you were selling all these cars. I said, I got saved. <laughs> We go, what do you mean, what's that? And I told him, I said, I can't sell cars anymore. God won't let me. Sorry, that's impersonal. But I gotta get out of here and be broke somewhere else because this is going nowhere. My idol was obliterated. And he said, son, you've got these same skills. We're gonna use them in a different way for a different purpose. And you are no longer ever going to have the hope that you're going to use those skills and gifts in the way you've used them before. You can use them for me. And that was one of the greatest lessons I learned. Hungry as I'll get out, but I learned something. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, serving the wrong God. And I was bringing my past into my present, thinking I was going to be successful, and I wasn't. My identity had changed. And even when you're lost, you have skill sets and you have things that you can do. God still uses those, but he uses them for a different purpose. Paul the apostle is a great example. He had skill sets and knowledge and a way to deal with people. His personality, your personality doesn't greatly change when you get saved. It's just that you use your personality for a different reason, a different purpose. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. God often allows the ungodly to amass great wealth to their destruction. But if you are one with whom God is dealing, and if you put the pursuit of riches or anything else before service to Christ, God may take away those riches and other things until you turn to him. It's a contest. Some years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse was counseling a young woman on the sidewalk in front of 10th Presbyterian Church following an evening service. She said she was a Christian and that she wanted to follow Christ, but she wanted to be famous too. She wanted to pursue a stage career in New York. After I've made it into theater, I'll follow Christ completely, she said. Barnhouse took a key out of his pocket and scratched a mark on a postal box standing on the corner. That is what God will let you do, he said. God will let you scratch the surface of success. He will let you get close enough to the top to know what it is, but he will never let you have it because he will never let one of his children have anything rather than himself. (laughs) He's like one of these dudes that tells it like it is. Years later, he met the girl again and she confessed that this had indeed been her life story. She had dabbled on the stage, once her picture had been in the national magazine, but she never quite made it. She told Barnhouse, I can't tell you how many times in my discouragement I've closed my eyes and seen you scratching on that postal box with your key. God let me scratch the edges, but he gave me nothing in place of himself. Money is an idol to us, it's got that potential. Our identity at its core in the simplest form has to first be placed in Christ before anything else. Entertainment can become a hiding place and escape when Christ himself tells us time and time again, I am your hiding place. There's nothing wrong with entertainment, but when it becomes your world, when it becomes your prayer closet when you hide there so you don't have to confront reality, it's an idol. Sex and hedonism in our culture is an idol. Comfort is an idol. Convenience is an idol. Take them to any extreme that minimizes the nearness, the intimacy, the power, the authority of Christ, and they will fall before the presence of God. Influential nationally known ministers, world-renowned ministers have experienced this time and time again. They move in circles of influence that distort their understanding of whose influence that really is. They think it's their own, but it's only the Spirit of God. Apart from him, he can do nothing. They amass and accumulate large amounts of money, slowly lean into the deception that it's actually theirs, and they have authority to make decisions and consider things that others don't. Well, that may be true. But the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And they become so powerful, so known, so credible by by their reputation that those closest to them will not hold them accountable. They're deceived. And they fall, and they fall hard. And their idolatry shames the body. And here we are again, having to come back from a discredited loss such as that, it's idolatry. We must look out for fame and prowess and ability and success, ideologies that are distorted, and we must remain humble and simple, independent, and at times needy. Where do you spend your time And where do you spend too much of your time? Where do you spend your money? Where do you get your joy? Where do you get too much of your joy? I'm so very grateful, so very grateful that I heard those words. Son, I'm going to take you down to little or nothing. (laughs) I'm going to. I'm gonna winnow you down to nearly nothing. And we'll talk about building you back up. But we're not gonna start out dealing in amounts and having dreams and having desires that are so far beyond your level of maturity to handle. I'm not going to sit here, the Lord would say to you, and allow you to fashion an idol it gives you a deeper sense of comfort and convenience and importance. I'll let you dream and I'll let you aspire to things and I'll let you inspire others, but you're, you're not going to set up your own kingdom and your own mind of what you're gonna do in the future and have little discussion with me about it or little leaning into or on me to do it. I just assume we take it a day at a time. Because after a while, there's no one to pick up your idols, prop them back up, and glue them together. It just gets to be exhausting. Yeah, money, money will be taken from those who define themselves by it. So too will the skills involved to acquire it often. And I would also say this. You and I need to live one solitary day at a time. Humble, simple, mindful of the fact that every now and again we need you to use the word Lord a little more often than we probably do, and Master probably a whole lot more often than we ever do. It's a reminder we were bought, we are owned. We have a Lord. And that doesn't mean we can't walk in abundance and incredible joy and purpose and enjoy this life in so many incredible ways. But you and I are called to do that without, without an idol in our life. I feel sometimes like I'm standing by watching, observing, observing, almost with a sense of helplessness. That hedonism and pornography are slowly, daily by daily, ruining the American marriage and family, robbing entire generations of their future. As people lose themselves in an alternative universe. And you know what happens? I'm seeing it now. It has such a power over people. It has such an authority and it calls the shots day in and day out over so many people's lives that they just plain cannot entertain the idea that the power of God would supersede it. To them, they are so overwhelmed and overshadowed by the evil of it all, which is idolatry at its core that they have no idea whatsoever that they could ever overcome because they have since defined the power and the authority of God to be less than the very stronghold that is gripping their life. And this and money are what we need to be concerned about if we wanna preserve what it means to live in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ in this country. Slice that any way you want to. The enemy has showed its ugly head and those who are imprisoned by it have little to no hope that they'll ever get out from under it because they've underestimated the power of God. They make efforts on their own and prop up their idols day in and day out thinking that somehow or another I don't know how it's gonna happen, but I'm gonna get free. And it is one of the most trying things a minister of the gospel can do with a parishioner, a person in a community, is to sit down and somehow try to get another day of them listening, just another day at a time, to where I can actually figure out how I'm gonna overcome this. There has to be some hope somewhere And it's so far down the road now the church is going to have to learn how to pray at a whole new level a whole new level of fervency and faith stop fighting any and everybody that comes down the pike start fighting the devil until that happens we lose temporarily but we lose and we're losing now Somebody's going to have to figure out how to pray and take back an entire culture from a culture that has a mind of its own, identity of its own, an agenda of its own, and is rooted in hedonism and money and the love of it. Watch the rich become broke, and then you'll know that God is on the move, setting the captives free. Speaking of this meal, consumerism and materialism is a huge influence in our culture. We are sometimes preoccupied with what we buy and what we give one another, and on some level, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with generosity and expressing love and sharing gifts. Every Christmas, I mean. How many brand new automobiles in the driveway with a red bow can you, <laughs> can you watch on a commercial? And how much of what we do is measured by what we give one another or, worse yet, what we don't? And when you come to Christ... Thank God it's so easily discernible because it's so greatly different than us. And that is this reality. What did he give us? Himself. There was no greater gift to give but himself. He gave the best gift there is to give, hands down. What did he buy? He didn't buy anything to give us. He bought us, the greatest thing he could buy. He gave us the greatest gift he could give us, and he bought the greatest gift he could purchase. And he purchased the greatest gift he could purchase with the greatest currency, the blood of the Lamb. Perfect. Perfect. Drop the mic and walk off. You can't top that. Only God would think of such a thing. I'll give you the greatest gift there will ever be, and I'll purchase the greatest gift I could ever purchase, you, and I'll purchase it with the greatest currency. Ever existed, my blood. It's a total no-lose. And in so doing, He gives us and meets our greatest need, and it meets His greatest longing to fellowship with us and to bring us with full access to the Father. We get up on Christmas morning with young children and wait for them to bound down the stairs from their bedroom to get excited as they see what their presents were and how they open them. And there's such joy in that, and there should be. God looks at us every day like it's Christmas. And I wonder if they're gonna discover what I gave them today in a deeper and more real way. I wonder if they're gonna unwrap what I have for them today and right next to every gift he has for us. It's the insepid allure of an idol wanting just a little bit of our time and attention. Not too much, not too fast, not too obvious, just enough to lure us into maybe a desire for a little more tomorrow. And our Heavenly Father is waiting for us to open every gift that he has for us today and meet our greatest need which is Him. The communicants would come forward, please. We're going to come to the Lord's table, the Holy Eucharist today. Partake of the greatest gift ever given. That meets our greatest need ever represented. The greatest price ever paid to have it. When the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to him, said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant, my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink ye all of it. There's two things that you're gonna hear in your ears and in your heart if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, one is, your sins are forgiven. Maybe in a tie with, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Friends, stay faithful. Stay faithful. Pursue him. Seek him, seek his kingdom, and all that is pure and holy, righteous and praiseworthy and perfect. All that is admirable, noble and true, praise him, worship him, seek him. Let the idols fall and don't pick them back up again. Don't prop them up, don't glue them together. Just keep walking. Come to the table of the Lord. Examine yourself. Enjoy the innocence of leaving the table. Count your blessings. And you find healing at this table today in the name of Jesus Christ. Physical, relational, healing. For your body, for your family, for your friends. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen.